Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, if I haven't had the chance to meet you before, my name's Kent. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, turn with me to that passage we just read, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Um, if you were not here with us last Sunday, I uh, would highly encourage you to go back, grab the podcast online, because last week we kicked off a brand new series uh, called City on a Hill. And the big idea behind this series as a whole is that we as followers of Jesus are called to be different from the world for the sake of the world. That is the task that Jesus has given his people. And in light of that, we're just spending the next month or so, the rest of this series, just discussing a handful of specific ways that we are called to do just that, particular ways that we can be different from the world around us for the sake of the world around us. And I've got to be honest with you guys, uh, as excited as I have been about this teaching series as a whole, uh, this morning... I need to give a teaching that I do not particularly want to give. Can I be honest about that? Is that fair? Uh, As some of you guys know already, we have a team of people here at City Church that help us craft and shape and edit and whittle down every single teaching that ever gets delivered here on Sunday mornings. And when I brought the idea for this week's teaching to that team a little over a month ago, uh, I was genuinely hoping that they would say in response, no, don't give that teaching. We don't need to give that teaching. I was hoping that would be what they said, and instead, much to my horror, they said yes. They said that I need to give this teaching, and then I said, well, on an unrelated note, I'm going to be out of town that week, so we need somebody else to give this teaching, and then they said, no, we'll move it to whatever week you want to give it since it was your idea, and then I said, what idea? I never have ideas. And then they said lying was a sin. So here we are. That's how we got to this point. Now you're caught up. But in all seriousness, uh, maybe here's how I would put it to you. Um, Sometimes when we open up the scriptures together as followers of Jesus, uh, it is like a feast. It's like the table is set for us with these unbelievable promises about who God is and these realities about who God is and these stories of what God is like. It's like a feast. It's like the theological equivalent of steak and bacon and rich, rich food. At one point to this effect, David actually says in the Psalms that God's words are like honey on his lips. Sometimes that's how it feels when we open up the scriptures. And then there's other times, times where it feels a little bit more like steamed broccoli. (laughs) Like not the good kind of broccoli that most places serve here in Tennessee where it's like coated in butter and cheese and all of that. Not that kind of broccoli, but just normal broccoli with nothing on it. Uh, Edison told me that he really likes broccoli this morning. I don't know if I can be friends with him anymore, to be honest with you. (laughs) So no offense if you like broccoli, but there's other times where it's like that. In the New Testament, John actually says at one point that God's words felt bitter in his stomach. 
Sometimes reading the Bible is a little bit more like that. But sometimes there are things in the scriptures that we need to digest whether or not we particularly want to. There are things that are good for us to hear as followers of Jesus, regardless of whether or not we like hearing them. And even if we enjoy hearing those things a little bit less, they are just as helpful, just as fruitful for us as followers of Jesus. Today is one of those days. This morning, I need to lay out some things to you from the scriptures that may not be fun or enjoyable to hear, but I think they are really, really necessary for us to hear. Today, together, we are going to eat some broccoli. Is that okay with you guys? I hope so. I have nothing else planned, so that was... I'm glad to hear you're with me. Okay, so now that everyone is sufficiently just a little bit on edge, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive into the passage together. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that there has never been a time where you said something to us that wasn't for our good. And so, God, this morning as we wade into some stuff that will not be comfortable, will not be easy, God, my prayer is that we would all have the humility to hear what it is you might have to say to us through your word. God, would you give us open hearts, open minds, open ears. God, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Would you help us consider the things that need to be considered for our good and for your glory. Amen. Okay, so before we get into the difficult stuff directly, I want to show you clearly why I am bringing the difficult stuff up. And to do that, I want to just try to unpack some of that passage that we just heard read a few moments ago, Colossians chapter 2. So if you are newer to the world of the Bible, first first off, welcome. The majority of the books in the New Testament are actually letters written from leaders of the early church to individual communities of Jesus' followers in the ancient world. So when we read books like Colossians in the Bible, we are quite literally reading someone else's mail. That's what's happening. Which means that to fully understand what these letters are saying to us, we need at least a cursory understanding of what was going on in that place at that time when the letter was written. So that's what we need to do briefly this morning with the book of Colossians. So Paul is writing this letter, the letter to the Colossians, at least in part, because Colossae is a city where there are lots of other religions, philosophies, ideologies sort of floating around in culture at large. There was everything from Gnosticism to Jewish mysticism to Cynic philosophy to Platonism. There was even a cult that worshipped the archangel Michael as a god. Haven't we all, right? I mean, who among us has not done that? Uh, Colossae was also known for something called syncretism, which is basically where people would take two or more of those religions and ideologies that I just mentioned, they would sort of put them in a blender together and then follow and believe whatever came out on the other side. And because of syncretism, we don't fully know exactly which ideologies Paul was concerned about for the Colossians specifically in his letter. It could have been one of those that I just mentioned. It could have been several of those. It could have been all of those. We don't particularly know. But we do know that all of these ideologies in the city at large were at least partly at odds with the way of Jesus. And Paul is writing this letter, at least in part, to make sure that the Colossians realize that 
and therefore are not being co-opted into believing something that is not true about the world. So with that background in mind, let's take a look at what Paul says to the Colossians, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what he says. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea. Evidently, Paul is concerned about some followers of Jesus there as well. And for all who have not yet met me personally, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we think Paul, in those last couple lines, is taking a subtle shot at some of these mystery religions and ideologies happening in the city. Many of them would actually claim to offer their followers hidden, secret treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's the language that they would use. So Paul here is essentially saying, yeah, treasures of wisdom and knowledge are great. You need all of that. And the best place to find all of that is in Jesus. That's his point. So so he's not actually saying he wants the Colossians to just close their eyes and stop up their ears when they think about other worldviews. But he is saying that all these other ideologies in the world are at best partial understandings of the world. And he wants them to have full understanding through Jesus. That's his point. He continues, verse four. I tell you this, Paul says, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So the word translated fine-sounding arguments there in the passage could be literally translated persuasive speech. That's what Paul says. He doesn't want the Colossians to be deceived by persuasive speech coming from all these different ideological directions. You see, Paul knows that the most dangerous ideologies there are are not the really bizarre ones. It's not the ones where people believe that the government is run by lizard people or that birds aren't real. And yes, those are real. Look them up. Actually, don't look them up. But they are real. They're out there. People do believe that. But in Paul's mind, stuff like that, those aren't the ideologies you have to warn people about most of the time. Because they generally attract the people on the fringes of society and pretty much no one else. You don't usually have to warn intelligent people about those sorts of things. The ones that you have to warn people about are the persuasive ideologies. The ones that appeal to people's strongest, most fervently held desires the ones that seem like they prioritize good things and accomplish good purposes, those ideologies, if they are not sound, are the most dangerous, Paul says, because they can deceive anyone and everyone, even intelligent, thinking sorts of people. So Paul says, see to it that no one deceives you with those. Continuing in verse five. For though I am absent from you in body... I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. We're gonna circle back to that part of the passage towards the end of our time today. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. And then Paul circles back to his point from a few verses earlier. Verse eight, see to it, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, 
which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So evidently, the problem might be even more severe than what Paul said earlier in the passage. Evidently, not only can followers of Jesus be deceived and tricked by these ideologies taking place in the world around them, they can actually be taken captive by them, in Paul's language. They can be swept up in them. The image that Paul uses here is the language for when an animal predator captures its prey. So for you nature documentary watchers out there, the five of you in the room, welcome. We're glad you're here. If you ever watched a nature documentary, you think of when that hawk captures a snake or a mouse and then just carries its lifeless body off to chow down on it. That, according to Paul, is what these deceptive philosophies and ideologies can do to a person. They can sweep people up in their thinking entirely to the point that they become a shell of the person that they used to be. And specifically, in the life of a follower of Jesus, these ideologies can infiltrate how we think in a way that corrupts and deforms our faith from the inside out. So Paul's concern isn't necessarily these Colossians will just wake up one day and all of a sudden decide to abandon their faith in Jesus. That's generally not how it happens. His concern is that they would begin to blend together these various ideologies in the world together with their faith in Jesus to the point that eventually they are unable to distinguish between the two of them. That's what he's concerned about. That's the nature of deceptive ideologies. They persuade and then they deceive and eventually they carry people off as captives. Are you following so far? Now at this point in the teaching, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, that sounds terrible. Uh, that sounds like a real problem for people living in first century Colossae. But at least that we know of, Jewish mysticism and angel cults aren't super popular in the 21st century. M most of us probably don't have friends that are wandering off into Gnosticism in their spare time. We just don't exist in the same type of society that the Colossians at that point did. We, we live in a pluralistic society, to be sure, but we don't live in a world where really bizarre cult-like religions are taking people captive like that, at least not in mass. That's just not the world that we occupy. And on some level, maybe that's true. But I would encourage you not to think for a second that we don't need to hear this instruction from Paul. In Colossians chapter 2, we just might need to consider it in slightly different ways for our age today. A Christian author named Leslie Newbegin, writing almost 40 years ago, he predicted that the less central religion became to life in the public square in the West, the more politics would actually come to occupy the space that religion once did. In his words, human nature abhors a vacuum. The shrine of worship does not remain empty. And he anticipated that within the near future, people's political convictions, whether that was loyalty to a candidate or a party platform or just loyalty to particular political causes, would take on an almost sacred religious type of zeal for people in America. 
that people would begin to form entire communities and ostracize their opponents and construct entire worldviews purely on the basis of political ideology. He also predicted 40 years ago that this type of thing would not just happen out in the world, outside of church communities, but actually within religious communities themselves, that followers of Jesus would be swept up in these political ideologies and causes, that they would attempt to merge together their faith in Jesus and their political allegiances of choice, or worse, that they would baptize their political ideology in religious language such that they feel like their cause is actually God's cause. Newbegin predicted that all of that would happen in America's not-so-distant future 40 years ago. So obviously he had no idea what he was talking about, right? No, I, I think he was spot on. That is precisely what has happened in America, particularly over the past decade or so. The ideologies that are now deceiving the most people and taking the most people captive are often political in their very nature. And just as he predicted, they aren't just taking captive those outside of the church, but actually within the church as well. So in case you didn't realize already, we have now reached the broccoli portion of the sermon. See if I'm feeling just a little bit uncomfortable? Okay. So with that said, I want to talk about, in our time this morning, a couple of ideologies that are taking root in our day and age here in America. First, take a look with me on the screen at some photos from the U.S. Capitol building on January 6, 2021, like this slide. This was a day that will not be soon forgotten in our country's history. Next slide. Thousands of people descended on our nation's capital, some of them simply to protest what they believe to be a stolen election, and some of them to actively prevent the peaceful transfer of power to a new president. Next slide. There is, to be sure, a lot that we could say about that day from a historical, societal, and political standpoint. But here's the deal. I'm not a historian. I'm not a political commentator, I'm not a sociologist, I'm a pastor. So what stood out to me the most as I looked at photos and videos of that day, what stood out most to me was what felt like an abundance of Christian imagery on display, like this one. A cross where people were praying to Jesus before protesting. Or this one, a photo of Jesus donned in a MAGA hat. Or this one, people clutching their Bibles as they bypassed barricades and made their way into the Capitol steps. That day, there was a bizarre mashup of American and Christian imagery together that I don't even know that I fully understand, much less agree with. People who claim to worship a Jewish Messiah wore signs and symbols of white supremacy. People who knew Jesus' commands to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you came ready to destroy, harm, and even kill anyone who stood in their way. People who knew the New Testament's command to submit to the governing authorities used American flags to assault police officers. Most of it made no sense whatsoever 
from a biblical standpoint. In fact, from the after, in the aftermath of all of this, a group of over 500 pastors here in the U.S. banded together to release a statement. In it were these words. There is a version of American nationalism that is trying to camouflage itself as Christianity, and it is a heretical version of our faith. I tend to agree with them. You will not find any support in the Bible for that brand of Christianity unless you choose to rip a few select passages entirely out of their intended context. That is not the movement of Jesus. It is something else entirely. And no follower of Jesus, regardless of their political persuasion or preference, should have a problem saying that. But here's the thing. If I had to guess, nothing that I just said actually bothers very many people in this room. Maybe if our church existed in some of the more rural parts of Tennessee, I would be kindly escorted out of the building or not so kindly escorted out of the building after saying something like that or quietly asked to resign my post as pastor. But we're a downtown Knoxville church. We're relatively young as churches go. We tend to be more politically moderate and politically apathetic than we are hyper-conservative. So I would imagine that even if the last few moments were uncomfortable for us in this room, most of us would probably have no problem condemning the sorts of things that we just saw on screen. And it's because of that that I need us to realize that is not the only ideology taking place in our day and age not by a long shot. Let me show you another very different set of photos, like this one, or this one. Notice the Christian imagery here as well, as well as here. I'm sorry, go back to the previous one. I might have gotten ahead of myself. Okay, so this one. Now this one to me is especially interesting because that is a clerical vestment and a clerical collar presented in pride colors. Now, the reason that's interesting to me is that if you know anything about the history of clerical vestments like these, the idea behind them has generally been that those clerical vestments are meant to set a minister apart from the world around them. Specifically, sometimes they signify their purity, with some of them even taking voluntary, lifelong vows of celibacy as a form of spiritual consecration to God. And, and whatever you think about the pride movement, I, I think most would agree that words like celibacy are not very descriptive of that movement, nor would people even within the pride movement want words like that assigned to them. So something like clerical vestments originally intended to set a minister apart from the world around them, are now being used to proclaim just how supportive that minister is of one of the world's ideologies. That, at bare minimum, feels a little bit dishonoring to the tradition itself. Let's take a look at a couple more, just in case we weren't uncomfortable enough already. Look at this one. Notice the use or misuse of scripture there to make a passage from the Bible say something that it most definitely does not mean. Same thing here. And then finally, this one. There's a lot going on in that photo. <laughs> but at the top, we see a pride flag draped over the cross of Jesus itself. So once again, we have example after example after example of, of Christian symbols and 
scripture and imagery being enmeshed with other ways of viewing the world as if they are one and the same. So what if we took that same quote that we had on the screen earlier and we applied it to the other side of the aisle? What if we said there is a version of American progressivism that is trying to camouflage itself as Christianity and it is a heretical version of our faith? Couldn't we say that too? Or would we be more uncomfortable saying that? Now, before we go any further, let me just clarify a couple things. First, by bringing up these two movements, one after the other, I am not trying to equate them with each other. I'm not trying to insist that they're just equal and opposite dangers. I'm not trying to say that they are each just as dangerous, just as destructive, just as given towards acts of violence as the other one. There are differences and nuances between them. There are differences and nuances between the adherents of those movements. So don't hear me saying something I'm not saying, but I am trying to say that they are both at their core ideologies. And increasingly, these two ideologies in our world have almost become religions in their own right. They each have converts with conversion stories. They each have people that they've exiled for being heretics and people that they venerate as saints. They each have rules and doctrinal statements that you have to live by if you want to remain in the good graces of the movement. They each have a narrative about the problem with the world and a prescribed solution to that problem. They each have a vision of the ideal future for us and then prices that must be paid to get there. And obviously, as we just saw on the screen, they each have quite a bit of religious zeal behind them. So I'm not saying they're virtually the same, just on two different sides of the aisle, but I am saying they're both ideologies. Second, by calling these movements ideologies, I am not trying to insist that neither of these two movements contain any good ideas at all. I actually think both of them do. For instance, can followers of Jesus be grateful for America and want good for America? Absolutely they can. In fact, I would argue that Jeremiah 29 actually encourages God's people to do something very much to that effect. We should care about the society that we exist within and even want good for it. That can be a great thing. But when gratitude for America and America's success becomes all that matters in life, becomes all-encompassing when it becomes the only thing that matters, as a follower of Jesus, I can't go there. When America being successful and prosperous would require me to violate things that the scriptures clearly teach, like love for my enemy and compassion and hospitality towards people from other places, well, then, then I've wandered away from Christianity and I've wandered into something else entirely. I've been taken captive by an ideology at that point. The scriptures never, I repeat, the scriptures never teach that loyalty to an earthly country should take precedence over all else. We have people at City Church who I would consider to be very patriotic, people who have served as current and former members of the U.S. military, but they have the maturity to realize that their loyalty to America is never to supersede their loyalty to the kingdom of God. It's similar with the other side. 
as followers of Jesus? Should we treat members of the LGBTQ community with dignity and respect and compassion? Should we insist that those people not be threatened or made to feel unsafe simply because of who they are attracted to? Absolutely we should. The Bible is clear that all people are made in the image of God and are deserving of dignity and respect. There are not exceptions to that idea based on a person's sexual orientation. But when it is increasingly suggested that I not only must accept and tolerate another person's sexual preferences, but that I must cheer them on and celebrate them for those choices, as a follower of Jesus, I can't go there. There has been very little debate for 2,000 plus years over what the scriptures teach about sexuality, that sex is reserved for the context of a marriage between a husband and a wife, and that any sexual expression outside of that is against God's design. But here's the thing, even if you disagree with me on that conclusion, I would still argue that the pride movement's perspective on sex differs substantially from the movement of Jesus in more ways than just what they believe about marriage. We have members of our church who would identify as gay or same-sex attracted, and yet they have the discernment to realize that being a sexual minority does not force them into blind allegiance to the pride movement and all that it represents. So again, the problem isn't that ideologies never contain any good ideas at all. Sometimes they do. The problem is when those ideas become everything. When they become the guiding philosophy for all of life, all of society, all of humanity, that is when an idea turns into an ideology. And to that, I firmly believe that Paul would say to us as followers of Jesus today, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Because in a number of different ways, both of these ideologies find themselves at odds with the movement of Jesus. And they both, at least at our present moment, are just as capable of deceiving and taking captive followers of Jesus who get tangled up in them. They are both just as capable of disguising themselves as Jesus adjacent for just long enough to win people to their cause and then eventually demanding the ultimate allegiance of those people in return. For example, if you're sitting in this room right now, and you are very, very, very glad that I called out one of those movements and very, very upset that I called out the other one. I think that just demonstrates how firm of a grasp these ideologies can have on the human heart. Because as Paul says, that is what ideologies do. Many of them start with good, noble, respectable ideas, but then they carry us off to a place that is completely at odds with what we believe to where we will even demonize people that we would otherwise love and care for because they took aim at our ideology. And to make matters worse, there are churches out there that will try to get you to believe that there are only ever dangerous ideologies on one side or the other. Some churches will say that all of the unbiblical dangerous ideas are on the political left, so the further you move to the political right, the better off you'll be. And then increasingly, there's churches that say the opposite, that all of the dangerous ideologies are on the right, and so the more you move to the left, the better off that you'll be. 
And I'm just here to tell you that I highly doubt Satan actually cares which side of the tracks you fall off of as long as you're not on the tracks. I highly doubt Satan cares whether you are heretically conservative or heretically progressive as long as you are not living by the true gospel of Jesus. So to me, the response to all of this is not actually, do I need to move more to the right or more to the left? The question to ask is whether or not I have been taken captive by an ideology, and if so, what do I do about it? That's the question that has to be asked for followers of Jesus in the room. So, for the remainder of our time together, that is what I want to try to help us with. Maybe some of you have already checked out on this morning's teaching. Maybe some of you have decided that today was your last day at City Church, and that's entirely your choice. That's your prerogative. That's your decision to make. But I would imagine that that's not most of us in the room. I think most of us have the humility to realize that if people back then were vulnerable to philosophies and ideologies, well, then that means it's at least possible that we're vulnerable to it today as well. And because of that, most of us want to do our best to make sure that that does not happen to us as followers of Jesus, or even to evaluate if it is currently happening to us. So for the remainder of our time, I want to try to give you some ways to evaluate and address all of that. How can we know if we are being deceived or even taken captive by certain ideologies in the world, whether it's two of the ones we mentioned today or whether it's different ones entirely? How do we know that that's happening to us? And if it is, what do we do about it? So first, let's talk about the signs of ideological drift. The signs of ideological drift. What are some ways to know if an ideology has taken root in us and is influencing more and more of the way that we think? I'll give you a few questions to jot down that you can ask yourself today. You may want to actually sit with them a little more later on. But first one would, to be, would be to ask, who do I feel the most kinship with? Who do I feel the most kinship with? Specifically, do I feel more camaraderie with a non-believer who aligns with me on a certain issue than I do with a believer who does not align with me on that issue? Do I feel more camaraderie with non-believers who believe the way I do on any number of issues? Whatever party you support, whatever issue you're passionate about, do you have any of that going on in your heart and mind? If so, I think that's generally a sign that something has gotten misplaced in your heart and mind. Second question. Is my friend group an echo chamber? Is my friend group an echo chamber? So this is just a slightly different way of asking the first question, but do pretty much all of your friends that you hang out with with any regularity, do pretty much all of them see social and political issues roughly the same way that you do? Are your friend groups pretty homogenous in that way? And if someone new comes along and spends time with your friend group and thinks differently than the rest of you do on any number of issues, is that person pretty quickly to be made to feel ostracized from the group as a whole? If so, I think that's a pretty good sign that that particular ideology is shaping too much of your life, including all or most of who you hang out with. I think this also impacts how we view other people from a distance. So what I've seen happen, what tends to happen in people is that when we become particularly entrenched in an ideology, 
we tend to think that we came to our conclusions as an autonomous, critically thinking individual. But those people over there that believe differently than I do, well, they're just blindly following the crowd. They don't know how to think for themselves. They're just dumb and unenlightened. They're just doing what everybody else does. When in reality, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. The other crowd probably thinks more critically than you're ready to give them credit for. And you are probably far more, for, far more formed by the forces around you than you think you are right now. That's teaching from a different, for a different day. Anyway, here's the third question. Signs of ideological drift. Ask yourself this one. What do I most readily evangelize about? What do I most readily evangelize about? What is the thing that you talk most eagerly and freely about with other people? What convictions and opinions do you most readily vocalize in public? Uh, specifically for followers of Jesus, are you far more eager to express your passion about any number of different socio-political issues than you are to tell the story of how you've been changed by Jesus? Uh, to you, is it cheesy and tacky to wear Christian t-shirts, but very, very normal to wear t-shirts with your political candidate or your political cause on it? Now, personally, I think both of them are tacky. <laughs> but either way, if you will do one and you won't do the other, I think you gotta ask yourself why. Uh, maybe more realistically for our crowd. Is it very, very easy for you to post things online to your social media accounts about your political cause or your social cause that you're in support of, but you would never, ever post about anything related to church or Jesus? What do you most readily evangelize about, and what do you not evangelize about? I would encourage you to spend some amount of time with those questions. Sometime this week, maybe on your own, maybe with a few people close to you that know you really well, that spend a lot of time around you, who maybe can help you answer those questions even more honestly if you've got some blind spots. But consider if there are any signs of ideological drift in your life. From there, let's talk about the solution to ideological drift. The solution. Here's the most important thing you need to know about all of this. The solution to ideology is orthodoxy. The solution to ideology is orthodoxy. Now, I don't mean like the Eastern Orthodox Church. Those folks are great. That's not what I'm referring to in this sermon. Orthodoxy just means right belief. Right belief. So if you've still got your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 2, take a look back with me uh, at verses 6 through 10. We'll also put them up on the screen. This is what Paul says is the alternative, the solution to being taken captive by the world's ideologies. Verse 6 says this, For then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. 
Paul says the way that the Colossians can avoid getting deceived and swept up by the philosophies and ideologies of their day is to cling to Jesus. Live your lives in him, Paul says, rooted and built up in him. Instead of letting go of Jesus to go after whatever the ideological flavor of the year happens to be, cling to Jesus and let the ideologies fall where they may. Now, that, of course, raises the question, how do we do that? How do we cling to Jesus? How do we hold fast to orthodoxy in an age of ideology? Here's how, I would argue. First, you've got to look at your inputs, the inputs into your life. And by inputs, I mean the things that you allow to speak to your heart and mind on a regular basis. What things most consistently feed you ideas about the world around you and how to think about it? For the bulk of us, I would argue it's probably whatever media that we consume the most. Social media, YouTube, Netflix, cable news, news outlets, music, movies, the list goes on and on. One way or another, you and I are regularly face-to-face, ear-to-ear with dozens of inputs into our life every single day. And all of those inputs are relaying a variety of different mindsets and belief systems to us. Some of them are compatible with the Christian worldview, and many of them are not. And that's okay. As followers of Jesus, we shouldn't expect or require everything we watch or listen to or interact with to cater exclusively to our worldview. That's not realistic. But we do have to be honest with ourselves about the impact those sources are having on our hearts. So listen, just just as plainly as I know how to put this, if you are reading the Bible for five minutes a day optimistically, and you are consuming five hours of TikTok every day, one of those things is going to form your heart and mind more than the other. If you are conversing with God in prayer for a few minutes, just when you think about it in life, but you are watching Fox News from the moment you get home from work until the moment you go to bed, one of those things is going to win out in your mind. I think sometimes we would love for it to be more complicated than that, but sometimes it's just not. And I realize it is probably unrealistic for me to think that most of us are going to spend more time in the scriptures and in prayer than we do entertaining ourselves. So knowing that, assuming that, bare minimum, at least let's do this. Let's become critical consumers. Critical consumers. Do not passively consume the media that you consume. And you might say to that, okay, but that's the thing. I watch that stuff to turn my brain off. Okay, fine. Turn your brain off when you watch it. But sometime after you watch it, turn your brain back on. Practice asking yourself, what are those inputs teaching me to believe? about myself, about God, about the world around me, about other people. So that that reel on Instagram that I just watched, what is it teaching me to think about my marriage? That show I just watched, what is it teaching me to believe about sex and what sex is for? That news segment that I just watched, is it teaching me to love people different from me or to hate them? I want us to practice taking all of the media that we consume, all of the inputs in our life, holding them up to the scriptures and asking, is that true? Is that right? Is that consistent with the teachings of Jesus? Or is that inconsistent? And how does all of that shape the way that I live as a follower of Jesus? 
That to me is precisely what Paul means when he says, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. It's by doing all of that that we resist being formed by every philosophy, every worldview, every ideology that floats our way, and we persistently allow ourselves to be formed by Jesus instead. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, there's a section of scripture that reads much like what we just read in Colossians. There, Paul says that when we do all of this, when we participate in these sorts of things, when we train ourselves to be formed by the teachings of Jesus, he says, we will no longer be tossed back and forth by every wind of teaching and philosophy, but instead will grow to become, and this is his language, we will grow to become the mature body of Jesus himself. Now, that is a staggering statement if you stop to think about it. Because Paul just said that living in this sort of way where we allow ourselves to be formed by Jesus, living in this sort of way turns us collectively into the very body of Jesus. When we hold fast to orthodoxy in a world of ideology, we put Jesus on display to the world around us more vividly. We become that city on a hill that we've been talking about in this series. We become a light in the darkness. People see that in us, and they are drawn to the way of the kingdom as a result of it. People see that, and they glorify our Father who is in heaven in the language of Jesus. That's what we're after as a community. So that's all I've got for you for today. I want to just offer you one last thing, and I know we've been a bit long today. But if I could just clarify one last thing, and this is really important to me, especially if you're newer to our church community here. If you are here this morning, and what you heard in all of this is that you are now our enemy, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the teaching again because we don't have the habit of making anybody an enemy around here. In the words of Paul from Ephesians chapter six, our enemies are not flesh and blood, but the principalities and the powers over this present darkness. So no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, no matter what ideology you are personally prone to, we are not against you, never. We are for Jesus, and therefore, we are against anything that leads people away from Jesus. And that's because we believe, the reason that you are not our enemy, the reason we don't believe that you are our enemy is because we believe that when we were Jesus' enemy, he made us his friend. That's what the cross was all about. What Jesus was doing on the cross was that he was taking people that had made themselves enemies of God and he was making them friends, family even. So those of us that know and follow Jesus, we're gonna go to the tables here in just a second. We're gonna remember the cross of Jesus, the broken body, the spilled blood of Jesus on the cross. And when we do that, we are remembering that Jesus brought us into his family when we were his enemies. And we would love nothing more than, than to show you how we are capable of doing that same thing for you. That we would love to take anyone who thinks that they are an enemy of God and make them our friend and help them see that they can be Jesus' friend too. That's what we're after here at City Church. We would love nothing more than to demonstrate that that is our heart around here and it's all because of Jesus.
Let me pray for us.